This is episode 35 of the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast with Fleur Hughes. One day, if I think back to advice I would sort of give my younger self, is, um, you know, don't, don't plan that journey out bit by bit. Sort of see, you know, take, take the path unknown, and, you know, do the YouTube, and just sort of see where, where your travels go. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, we have part one of my conversation with Fleur Hughes. This was such an in-depth conversation. Uh, We talked about culture and different interventions and resources and just a lot of different rabbit holes that I personally didn't necessarily receive a lot of training on in my undergraduate and don't work with um, in my practice. So this was a really interesting conversation for me. And I hope that you learn a lot too along the way. Uh, again, this will be part one. So part two will come out the following week. Uh, and you can tune into that to hear the rest of my conversation with Fleur. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps this podcast be more visible to people who are looking for this type of content and hopefully we can continue to inspire other professionals not always music therapists but anyone looking for meaningful conversations uh, to grow and develop as a professional also please consider joining our group on facebook we're at music therapy chronicles and becoming a patron over on Patreon. So without further ado, let's get into the beginning of my conversation with Fleur Hughes. Hi, Fleur. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Trisha. How are you doing? I am really excited for this conversation because the listeners didn't hear all the wonderful stuff that you just like listed for me, but I am so excited to learn so much from you in this conversation because you have some awesome topics on your mind. And I, yeah, let's just get into it. So tell our listeners about you and because of your story um, about you before you got into music therapy. So um, I originally grew up in South Africa, as you can hear from my accent, and I I went down the very traditional route of sort of, you know, learning band in school and going on to do a Bachelor of Music degree. And when I finished my music degree in 2002, I ended up moving to the UK, where I taught high school music. And just for various reasons, at the time, that wasn't the right job for me. And after three years of doing that, I actually left teaching and ended up joining the British Army. It was quite a big career change. Um, From 2006 to 2009, I spent three years as a musician, doing all the sort of ceremonial musicianship stuff that you do, playing marching bands, uh, all the the sort of mess functions, things like that. And then after that time, I decided I wanted to try something new. So I went into a new job role. And um, that sort of led me to going out on operational tour in 2009 to Afghanistan. And it was really my time while I was out on tour that got me into music therapy. Because out there, you know, people were dealing with the stress and the sort of tribulations of being out of the war zone. And it made me realize that everybody deals with stress in different ways. And not everybody always wanted to talk about how they were feeling. But I noticed, you know, some people would journal 
some people would have guitars with them and just play music to help them calm down. Um, some people would draw. And it made me start thinking, you know, I wonder if there is something like music or art therapy. What are some of the arts-based therapies? And I started doing some research into that. So when I came back from tour in um, 2010, I looked into starting the course at Bristol at the University of West England. Um, I liked the fact that it was a lifespan approach. So you got to work from children all the way up to adults. It was a part-time master's. So I could study and work. Um, and also as a sort of older learner, you know, by the time I left the army and started my, my degree, I was in my sort of early 30s. Uh, I realized, you know, studying full time is just mentally too taxing. So it was nice having the option of this sort of course where I would attend my, my, my practicum and class, but then also be able to work. And um, in 2014, my husband, who was still serving in the army, he got a posting out to Canada and we ended up somewhere called Medicine Hat. So this would sort of be the second time that I got to immigrate to another country. And a big shift in my work started happening because I realized, you know, um, sort of having lived, grown up in South Africa, immigrating to the UK, the UK was very much a European country, moving from there into sort of a North American country, I started thinking, you know, how would my work as a therapist be affected by essentially immigrating to two different countries? And also, you know, just the, the, the differences in worldviews, um, lifestyle, and, and even just sort of how music therapy is perceived in North America compared to Europe. So in um, 2014, I, I, I finished um, the last years of my master's and my placement was in mental health. So I worked with adults who had schizophrenia. And during that time, I also noticed that the sort of population and the people who I started working with uh, were much more diverse. And it made me reflect a little bit about, you know, cult cultural applications in music therapy and sort of how do we work with people from diverse backgrounds, different populations, people who've come here from different countries, people who don't always speak the language. And certainly around 2014, I noticed that there were a lot more sort of immigrants and refugees coming into Canada. And I just started sort of um, reflecting on, you know, how could I make my own work more culturally informed? And um, also being in North America, um, here in Canada, they have their indigenous population. And I started uh, working with some of these people in my, in my role as a therapist. And it also made me start thinking, you know, how is something like mental health culturally perceived? Because my idea of mental health from a sort of Eurocentric background might look very different for somebody who's African, might look very different from someone who's in the Middle East. And um, these were just sort of questions and conversations I started having with myself. Yeah. Oh, so many good, good rabbit holes to go down in there. So I'll start, I'll start at the beginning. You, as an older music therapy student getting your master's, um, you said you, you chose the program because it had a lifespan approach. And that's something that when I have high school students reach out to me and ask about getting into music therapy, you know, they're 18, they probably don't know what their theoretical approach will be or what they want to learn. But that's what I always tell them is think about the type of program you're going into and if it aligns with your core values. So that's an awesome thing that you were able to do as an older student. Yes, and I really agree with that. And also, you know, you're going to be spending a lot of money and time investing into your program. Mm -hmm. So really research because um, I know, for instance, some universities are more medical-based where perhaps they follow more NMT. Some of them, you know, perhaps follow the more Lord of Robbins approach. So do your research into what approach is going to work for you. And also, essentially, when you decide to go into practice, something else that I really enjoyed about Bristol was the fact that it was very much a community um, music therapy-based approach as well. And most of my work in my private practice is that community-based mental health work. Um, and, you know, as, as we go through this, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about, about my roles. I, I'm very lucky that I have a, I have a permanent job. Um, which is within a school setting, an education setting now, but my private practice work is the sort of more community-based work. And just also sort of, if we think about culture, culture within our work settings look very different. 
you know, yeah. education culture is very different to long-term care. It's very different, for instance, to the culture I had when I was in the military. So those are also just some things perhaps to, to chat about. Yeah. How interesting that it's come full circle, that you started out as an educator, and now you're back in that education setting. What's that like, being there but in a different role, also in a different country? You know, that's, I, I've never actually thought of it that way, but oh, yeah. now that you're up, I'm, I'm sitting here blushing. <laughs> um, I'd actually say that is very much a full circle moment, but I certainly can see the difference between being a therapist with an education setting compared to being a teacher. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if I reflect back to what I was like at the age of 22, 23, going into teaching, um, there was nothing, nothing therapeutic about being an educator. Uh, you know, you go in there, you do the work, that's it. Um, often, you know, people, children, kids come and unload and they come and talk to you about things. But as a teacher, I, I don't really have any counselling or therapy training. So, you know, normally I would then send them to the guidance counsellor if your school was lucky to have something like that. Mm. But now I find, you know, as a therapist, I really get to work um, with developing the sort of therapeutic relationship with, with the kids who I am with and getting to know them um, getting to develop that sort of relationship. And as a teacher, you don't always have the time to do that. You know, uh, when you're busy marking and doing this curriculum, you're so busy, often it can be very hard to develop a relationship with the kids who you're with. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a therapist, you know, I'd say the biggest difference between therapy compared to education is the therapeutic relationship. And also sort of observing the process of change. So when kids get referred to me, um, and, and I go and I do music therapy with them. It's you know reflecting back on this is what things are like in their first session after twelve weeks or after a year. You know this is where we're at now. So also you know I really get to see um, sort of you know how how that rate of change happens. Whereas as a teacher, you know again that wasn't the the, the mandate of my job. So um, I didn't really get to sort of see those things that you know counselors or therapists do. But um, also, I was in a high school. My job that I'm in now is with an elementary. And that's also very different as well, you know, dealing with teens compared to dealing with the young kids. Isn't that the truth? And something that I really love working with young children is just how sort of, you know, um, wide open-eyed they are and how they explore. And there's this constant want to learn and experience. And I find that constant want to learn to experience things and explore things sort of affects me in my own work. So in my own work, I'm also constantly wanting to learn more and explore more because of the people I work with. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome that uh, at 23, you or I guess 18 when you started school, you knew that a school setting was right for you. And over time, you've been able to create the kind of the position that's right for you in that setting. Awesome. Yes. And, you know, you never know sort of where life is going to take you. And, uh, I'll, I'm, you know, I might talk about it later, but I've had a few sort of full circle moments. And, uh, you know, when you're young, you think there's this very linear way of where you're going to move towards. However, you know, often I talk about U-turns and stuff like that. The the, the road that we end up taking um, can be very different to sort of what we set our mind to. Yeah. Do you want to give us an example now? Yeah. yeah. So, yes. So a good example would be certainly certainly when I finished my degree, I did not think at all about joining the army. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was really at, at the time, uh, teaching was a very difficult experience for me, but I had to go through that difficult experience to, to realize, actually, I need to follow a different path. And if I hadn't joined the army, I wouldn't have met my husband and I wouldn't have ended up, you know, in Canada, I wouldn't have ended up doing music therapy. So, you know, I think one day if I think back to advice, I would sort of give my younger self is, um, you know, don't, don't plan that journey out bit by bit. Sort of see, you know, take, take the path unknown, um, you know, do the U-turn and just sort of see where, where your travels go. Yeah. Awesome. So what, can I ask what inspired you to join the Army? Uh, yeah, so, so sort of it was just one thing was I at that time decided, you know, do, would I, do I choose to go back to South Africa, which wasn't really a choice, uh, just various reasons, there wasn't much work things like that. Um, and I had a, a friend who was actually in the parachute regiment band, and she'd mentioned, you know, they're looking for musicians. Uh, my main instruments are flute and piano. And she said, just just come and join and see if you get in. So 
so part of it, the decision was ultimately theirs because I would have to, you know, you have to go through all the medical tests, um, all, all that sort of stuff to apply. Uh, once I sort of passed that hurdle, I had to get through basic training, which is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Yeah. But I think as well, you know, um, at the time, I was still relatively new to the UK. I'd only been in England three years. Um, I didn't have any family with me. My family were back in South Africa at the time. And I think the military also sort of gave me a sort of consistency and um, sense of purpose, which I perhaps at the time wasn't feeling that I had. Um, so that was sort of another driving force. And also, um, I think I just sort of wanted to challenge myself in a very different way. I've never been someone who's, who's a very sort of fitness-orientated person and certainly I got to challenge myself mentally and physically during my time in the military. Um, so that's also just sort of a goal that I set myself was to sort of challenge myself in, in other ways. And I got to do that. Yeah. What a beautiful depiction of that life choice. I like that a lot. So let's get into your private practice. Tell us about that. Yes. So um, my private practice, I started that up about a year ago. And um, it was just, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm just going to start a little side gig. I'd, I'd like to just make a little bit of extra money, as you, as you do. Mm-hmm. And um, essentially, most of my contracts in that ended up being uh, mental health-based um, and addictions-based community or organizations. So like one hour a week here or there. And I go in and do group sessions predominantly. But um, as I started sort of doing the work, um, for example, one of the sites that I go to, they they do um, community-based mental health programs where someone who's diagnosed with a mental health illness can come in um, and say, you know, I have X, Y, Z. And then they have a whole different bunch of programs that these people can attend. So they have rec therapy, they have music therapy, they go on day trips to places. And um, one of the clients I had in my group was someone who was from Ethiopia who, you know, I noticed was sort of going through some form of depression. And when I spoke to her, um, it became very apparent, you know, that she was struggling with sort of getting her family to come to Canada and all the loopholes that she would have to go through this and that. And um, it, it sort of, you know, this, this started echoing in different groups. So, you know, in, in other places, I went and did another workshop somewhere, which was to um, a group of immigrant women. And when I pitched up to do the workshop, um, there were five ladies who were all from Asia and none of them spoke any English. And there was a translator in the group. So for the hour while I was there, I had somebody basically translating as we went through the session. And what I really loved about this experience was um, I had all my different instruments there, my ocean drum, my chimes, thunder drum, drums, etc. But one of the ladies was playing the ocean drum and she got very overwhelmed by the sound of this. And I asked her translate here to ask, you know, what about this instrument is making her feel overwhelmed? And the translator did that and she expressed to me that um, this lady had mentioned that she'd come from somewhere which was nearby the coast in her own country. And, um, you know, she's living in the prairie now where there's no sea and she really misses being around water. And it was just like an amazing thing to see just how the sound of the ocean drum brought back that sound of the waves and the water to her. And something we reflected on as well is, you know, how important it is to be able to cry and have a sense of relief. Because again, culturally, some people just, you know, in in the UK, we call it stiff upper lip. You know, people hold on to their emotions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she'd been here a few weeks. And I think that's the first time it, it, it really dawned on her that she was somewhere very different. Um, and, you know, and then for the rest of that session, I just focused on sort of holding the group and supporting her in how she was feeling. And um, at the end as well, um, some of them shared some of their own songs in their own language. And I told them when I left, you know, it's really important, you know, you don't need me to be able to sit here and sing these songs or share these moments together. And essentially, you know, to continue listening to songs that remind them of a place they come from. Because music is always going to be that connection. You know, I think in every culture or journey we take, music plays some form of a ceremonial, traditional role as well. You know, when we get married, we have a wedding march. One day when we pass away, 
there's a sort of funeral march, a graduation, you know, we have our songs, Green Day, Time of Your Life, you know, there's there's always a song or some form of music that we use within our own daily lives. But, uh, you know, music has that very big cultural component. And, um, you know, continuing in my work with my private practice as well, a big part of the work that I started doing was with um, indigenous populations. And I really had to go and research a lot of stuff around, you know, sort of the stigma with mental health in indigenous population, understanding, you know, how their medicine wheel works. It's a very different perception compared to our Western idea, for, for instance, of, of well-being. Um, and, you know, a big word that kept on coming back to me the whole time um, is this word of interconnectedness. And thinking, you know, how we all interconnected, but really also how music connects all of us. And um, so, you know, in my private practice, um, I, I work with many different people from many different populations, um, men and women, but, you know, from the Middle East, from Africa, from Asia, uh, indigenous people. And, you know, the one thing as well I will say is I'm always painfully aware, you know, I, I'm a European woman, but, you know, how am I perceived? Mm. And often, you know, it's, it's, they've been tough conversations around colonialism. They've been conversations around, you know, when people talk about when they have to leave their country to go somewhere else. You know, I've, I've immigrated twice. Um, I know to a certain extent how that feels like, having to restart again, the pressures and the burdens and stuff that you, you have to deal with going through that. But I also find my own lived experiences have certainly informed me to become a better therapist, as well as sometimes having those, I sort of, you know, I call them uncomfortable truths, those uncomfortable truth conversations that you do have with your clients. And, um, you know, having supervision and being able to reflect on that, again, only makes my work sort of richer. Yeah. I guess I'll go here first. So for those of us who haven't immigrated and maybe are working with these populations but aren't able to sympathize and empathize ourselves, what advice or experiences would you share with them or something to better inform their practice? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd say, you know, for me, uh, being culturally informed, it, it means, you know, practicing sort of with a sense of humility and openness. Mm. And I'd say, you know, really think about stepping into the worldview of your client. You know, where are they coming from? What is the, you know, sort of the baggage that they're bringing into the session? And really sort of understand um, what it means to listen. And even if someone that isn't able to, to speak the language, you know, you can certainly hear it with an improvisation, within song choices, um, you know, and, and observing your client sort of where they're at. But I think a big thing it could, you know, a big thing could be even just thinking about incorporating traditional instruments. So, you know, like if you're going to be, if, if you know you're going to be working with an African population, find out perhaps which region that they're from and, and learn a little bit more about their style of drumming. Um, you know, African drumming on the djembe is very different to drumming with a group of indigenous people with a buffalo drum. You know, the one's very sort of polyrhythmic, the other one's far more sort of a heartbeat rhythm. So even understanding that the way we use rhythm might not be the same with, with two different types of populations. Um, I think a big thing as well is finding your commonality in culture. So, you know, I might come from South Africa. I might be with somebody who's who's from, I don't know, let's say a reservation and somebody else who, who might have come here from India. But then talking about the fact that in our culture, the one thing that connects all of us, for instance, is a drum. And then perhaps even showing, you know, this is what a tabla looks like. This is what the buffalo drum looks like. This is what a bodrum from Ireland looks like. And, and, and saying, you know, we all make the same sound at the end of the day, even though we sort of are made from different materials and sort of look a little bit differently. Um, so I sort of like using instruments as a, as sort of a personification um, for some of the metaphors that I use in the sessions. And as well as supervision. Um, you know, have have conversations with your clients and discussions and, and just put up your hand and say, you know, actually, I don't know about this. So can you tell me something that I need to know working with you, you know? Um, understand that also, you know, certain instruments, for inst instance, can be triggering. Um, 
something you know that I realized in one session once is I was working with uh, a refugee person and um, I had a kibbatzah and you know it makes that sort of scraping noise and the person relayed to me you know that sound to them was very triggering because it sounded like the sounds of like boots marching past their home mm. so you know even just being aware of the sound environment and that's also why, um, you know, as I, as, I, as I do my sessions, assessment is an important part and knowing, you know, perhaps which instruments I won't use, knowing which instruments to incorporate, finding out about what people's favorite songs are, songs that they don't like. Um, and also, you know, uh, most of the work that I do in the community is mental health based, but understanding the worldview around mental health, because it doesn't look the same on different, with, with different people that you work with. And um, sometimes it's also just having that conversation as, as around, you know, what, what, is, what does mental well-being mean for you? Because the way it might look for someone from somewhere else isn't the same way it would look for me. And um, there are some resources um, I had sort of mentioned two earlier. Um, there is a book called, let me just get it here. Um, it's called Culture-Centered Music Therapy by Brynjolf Steger. And, you know, he talks a lot about um, community-based music, but also uh, sort of how culture informs our practice. Um, and then music therapy in context, meaning, uh, music meaning and relationship uh, by Mercedes Pavicevic. And she was a music therapist who worked in the UK, but also worked in South Africa. And, you know, one of the things, the one time that she sort of, I remember um, reading about, was she was talking about improvisation and how she was leading this improvisation group in South Africa, and how long the improvisations were. And, you know, that is something I've noticed myself as well. Um, some cultures that I've worked with find it very hard to improvise because they don't really know how to free up, so that they need perhaps the structure that a song gives. Whereas I find with other people that I've worked with, um, sometimes, you know, I'm like, when is this music ending? Because the improvisations do just carry on and on and on. And... Um, I think as well, as a, as a musician, so sort of removing myself from the therapist thinking, but also musically, um, the way I engage with people from different places looks very different. And a big part of that, again, is, you know, the instruments that I use. I find um, the, the flute, for instance, is an instrument that I've used to engage with many different cultures. And with indigenous people, um, one of the groups that I worked with, they have their own traditional sort of indigenous flute. And I just took a flute, my, my flute with me, and we had a whole conversation of how, you know, what role does your instrument play? And what was so interesting is that the, the flute in their culture, for instance, is something that represents love. So when a young guy loves a woman, he goes and plays flute to her, which again, like an opposite role reversal. Here I am as a female playing a flute. And, uh, you know, just all these beautiful stories. So uh, it's also sort of just made me look at my own musicianship, but also sort of the way how I engage in my own music through different eyes. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. So earlier you mentioned, I think the wording was the wheel of health. And then you also mentioned how mental health is perceived differently in various cultures. So if those two are tied together, um, can you explain those to those of us who are less familiar with that? So in... Um, sort of the indigenous people that I've worked with here, they talk about, um, so the medicine wheel. So there's yeah. four quadrants. So each, it's like north, east, south, west. Uh, each one has a color, but it's about mental health, physical health, emotional health, and then spiritual health. But essentially, if your spiritual health is weak, for instance, it will affect your mental health. If you're not feeling well, then maybe you're not going to eat as well as you should be, so that's going to affect your physical health. If you're not feeling well physically, maybe you're going to sleep more, you know, you're going to feel more tired, maybe you're going to fall into depression. So the idea is we need to look after all four parts of ourselves to be physically well, this idea of being whole. And it's sort of what I find interesting is, um, again, is that interconnectedness with how all the different parts of ourselves connect with, within ourselves. And in the time, you know, my work that I've done with within mental health, I notice that people become very physically and sort of emotionally disconnected from themselves. And a big part of that physical disconnectedness, just what I've observed, often leads to addiction issues. 
because yeah. we're trying to find a way back to ourselves, uh, perhaps not always through the most healthiest of means. So, you know, in our Western culture, a very easy way to deal with some of the physical ways of dealing with addiction or mental health is through taking more, tab- you know, taking tablets, taking pills. So if I'm depressed, get some antidepressants, I'm going to feel better. Mm-hmm. However, perhaps a more holistic approach would be really going back to the root of what is making you depressed? You know, what is triggering that depression? It doesn't just happen. So, you know, is it circumstances? What's happening in your environment? Has there been a change in your diet? Like looking at all these things before we just say, okay, you're feeling that way, we need to fix it. So, um, you know, the work that I do in mental health is I always come back and really try and look at the root of what is causing this distress, what is causing you um, to feel this way, you know, with its low mood, etc. And um, I guess as well, an interesting population to think about is, you know, when, when I work with people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, and often, you know, with them, um, it's very much the distorted thoughts, the very much the catatonic movements, and again, this disconnect that they have. And one of the people that I worked with uh, a while ago um, in Medicine Hat is someone who'd spent nine years out in Zambia. And um, during his time there, he, he did, he, he, uh, he'd done like missionary work, and um, he was revered in the community for, for somebody, you know, who heard voices and stuff. And it was only upon him moving back to Canada where he then got diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm. And again, there's this, this concept in one place, you know, you're someone who sort of connects with the spirits in a different place. You're someone who has a mental illness. So it's, it is just a matter of understanding that worldview and perception is very different depending where you are. But then also, you know, how do we manage mental health for so many different people coming here? Um, and again, in my own experiences, there are some there are great resources for people who are who are immigrating over from different places and even coming here as refugees, but often the mental health support is not there. But then also understanding, you know, how does mental health support look for someone from Syria? It's going to look very different from someone who grew up here. And also, you know, what is mental health culturally for someone? In some cultures, there isn't even a word for the word mental health or schizophrenia. Those, you know, those are Western, not, not Western-made sort of names or connotations, but it just, it, it looks different depending where you're from. Yeah. Oh, so true. Um, so when you were talking about the wheel, it made me think of those of us who take a humanistic, uh, a holistic, an eclectic approach in our practice, and it's it's this isn't a new concept, but in Western society, we have all of these maybe more new age ideas that are coming into practice in general and how Eastern medicine and Eastern philosophy has had these and has named them and used them forever. And we're kind of rediscovering them um, to incorporate. And what I also find, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm very much interested, for instance, in mindfulness um, which is very much obviously based on Eastern philosophy. Mm-hmm. But again, how we've had to, you know, there's, um, there's this, this, this name to something. It's become very much a packaged deal. Yeah. We can get our Calm app. We can use all these different <laughs> mindfulness apps. We've certainly got on the mindfulness bandwagon. And it's, it's, you know, it's interesting how mindfulness probably has been there forever. I'd say before we all had our phones and everything, we were probably all a lot more mindful than we are now because we spent a lot more time focusing on things as opposed to being on social media and things like that. But, um, you know, it's a, I just, I like what you were saying earlier about just sort of an eclectic approach and a holistic approach. But, you know, when my work started, it was sort of very linear. It was, you know, I was going to work in this humanistic way and this is the way that I was going to practice. But actually, through the years, I have done my NMT training. Um, I am looking more into doing some stuff around DBT. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these sort of new tools that I'm putting in my toolkit, it's being able to meet the needs of the different people that I work with. Because, you know, again, if you're in long-term care, maybe NMT is more suited there. You know, if you're, if you're um, working within the community, then perhaps a more community-based music therapy approach is required. 
um, you know, if you're working in palliative care, maybe you, you will be more um, sort of, um, you know, think about using sort of analytical music therapy or even guided imagery. So as sort of looking back, um, you know, I've been doing this for five years now. Five years ago, I had a very set way of this is how it's going to look, this is how the sessions are going to run. And actually, by freeing up and being able to open myself up a little bit more, um, my own practice definitely has become a lot more sort of holistic. And also, in a way, um, it sort of, I think one of your colleagues was saying in, in a few podcasts ago, that more eclectic approach. Mm-hmm. So knowing that not one shoe fits everybody, it's sort of, you know, finding out the shoe size for everyone. Yeah. So. And how fortunate are we to be in an age where we can find the resources of all those different approaches and all these different theories and we can incorporate them our own way into our practice? Yes. Yeah. So uh, unless you'd like to add something to this, can we shift gears to the culture of the workplace Mm. and your experience with that? Yes, which again looks very different. So... um... Um, as mentioned, you know, my earlier work was in education. Um, and then I ended up, well, when we moved to Canada, uh, well, sort of education, then the military, then I'd say sort of long-term care, and then back into education mm-hmm. um, in a nutshell. But, you know, if, if we look at institutions, so, I mean, a school is very much an institution. The, the military is an institution with all its protocols, and sort of regulations and stuff like that. Long-term care is an institution. So as a therapist, when you go into all these different places, you know, how do you become aware of workplace culture? Um, in long-term care, you know, often as a therapist, you are under recreation, which causes some of its own sort of issues and concerns because people think you're an entertainer. Mm-hmm. In education, when you go in there, if they have their own music teachers, um, you, know, you know, what is the difference between a music therapist compared to a music teacher? Uh, so, you know, I, I, I've found it a struggle at times, you know, again, depending sort of which role you're in, to sort of navigate some of these cultural um, nuances. But I think essentially, you know, when people say to me, you know, what's the difference between you and a music teacher? What's the difference between you and an entertainer? It always comes back to this idea of a therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. And... You know, as an entertainer, if I go and do, let's say, ballet accompaniment or I'm playing, you know, for a choir or, or in a show, um, there's no therapeutic relationship between me and the audience. I'm, I'm there to do something that's skill specific, you know, in that job frame. As an educator, again, when I used to teach piano or even curriculum music, I'm teaching you a specific skill. You know, I might be teaching you about the elements of music. As a therapist, I'm taking the elements of music and putting them into a framework to help you go through some process of change um, and to help you meet sort of non-musical goals and aims. So I think a big part of workplace culture also is being able to sort of make your stamp as to, you know, I'm a music therapist, this is what I do. A big part of that culture is sort of finding your place within the team. You, you know, you will find people to align with. I find in my current job, it's, it's very much, you know, with the other therapists, the OTs, speech and language therapists, the physios, people like that. Um, but then it's also, and it's, it's not a case of being precious or saying, you know, I'm the music therapist, this is what I do. But it's about informing and educating people about this is how music therapy looks different to, you know, a community drumming circle, to a piano teacher, um, you, know, you know, to the choir conductor. Because... Someone might look at you and say, oh, but, you know, you're just playing piano. Well, no, I'm not just playing piano, you know. If I'm, if I'm playing piano, long, slow chords, where somebody's just listening to me, you know, maybe I'm doing a, a relaxation intervention. And if I'm running a drumming group, you know, maybe we are drumming because we need to release some of our physical energy um, and so forth. But the work, you know, I always remind them, my, my work has a specific goal or aim in mind. Um, compared to teaching somebody a specific skill. Uh, and that, that's always the distinction to sort of make between what, what is therapy, what is not. And I think also within workplace culture, um, you know, as a young therapist five years ago, I was very much always trying to please people. If someone said, just do it this way, you do it. But then after a while, you know, the risk that starts running in there is you also lose, a side, lose the side of 
what does your approach and what does your practice look like? And often, you know, it's having those conversations, having to say, you know what, um, as a music therapist, I don't perhaps need to be facilitating this. This is something your your music volunteer could be doing mm. or music teacher could be doing. Um, and it's, it's again, it's just, it's important for our own profession as well. And as we sort of develop, continue to develop our culture as music therapists, to be able to make those distinctions as well, you know, where is my place within this role, in this setting that I'm in? And, you know, in long-term care, especially where you might go and do interventions in people's rooms and like sit next to somebody um, and play while, you know, you know if, if they can't move, they're in their bed, um, they're unable to get out of it. I think a big part of that culture is respecting the space, knowing that you're going into somebody else's space yeah, and being respectful of that understanding, you know, who who is this person coming in here? Do they know what I'm doing? Um, do they know sort of, you know, what, why we're engaging in the therapy together? Um, in my current job, which is in a school, I, I get to have like a room where I set up my instruments. And again, you know, even just thinking about what does your therapeutic space look like? So is it a welcoming space? Is there space for people to move if they need it? You know, mm-hmm. are there a variety of instruments? Um, and being able, you know, I like having time after each session. I might have to move things around because it might not look the same for all the kiddos coming to see me. But also in my day, being aware, you know, in, in a school, culturally, again, you know, what, what, are the, what are the stresses and the things that the teachers are bringing in there and the managers that are bringing in there? And again, you know, how might that affect my day? And... Um, yeah, I think a big part of sort of mitigating that culture is like things like scheduling, sort of planning ahead, doing session plans, but also being able to be free enough and spontaneous enough that if the day isn't going to run that way, that you need to just sort of roll with it. Yeah. Um, which a lot of us can struggle with, especially at the start of our careers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and also another part of culture is respecting, I guess, all the protocols, you know, certain... Obviously, like in the military, there were certain ways we had to do things. But uh, again, in long-term care, if there's infection control, you know, you need to respect yeah. those things. Um, it's also sort of understanding, which can be a hard thing, but where you are in the pecking order. Mm-hmm. You know, especially <laughs> when you're dealing with nurses, doctors, people like that. Um, and sometimes I find, again, it's, it's, you know, even in the setting that I'm at, it's, it's having lunch with the teachers. It's having lunch with other therapists. It's, um, you know, if you see the nurses, you know, if, if you are in long-term care, just ask them, you know, how's your day? How's your morning been? And sometimes having those little micro conversations because um, that sort of all affects the place that you're in. And I guess a big part of that as well is funding, you know, because um, depending on how you can run your work and do your work, uh, also depends on what programming you can run. And in my time in long-term care, for instance, I did also realize that there wasn't a lot of stuff specifically for Indigenous um, people. So at one of the sites that I was at, we actually started a, we call we call this sort of a culture-informed drumming circle. But it was something that was led um, by one of the residents who had been an elder, um, you know, before coming into long-term care. And they were able to speak their own language. Um, they built their own buffalo drums that they were able to play. And what was just, and also it, it, the session worked slightly different in that every week we took a different teaching. So like one week we spoke about truth, uh, one week we spoke about respect. But um, as we drummed, you know, we would think, you know, what does it mean to be truthful? And then we would have conversations around, for instance, what, what truth might mean. But a, a big part of that was also smudging. And we had to go outside to be able to smudge to come back in. And, you know, essentially what normally would be a 45-minute session ended up taking an hour and a half because we really had to slow things down. There had to be certain logistical things we had to do. Um, It was in the lunchroom as well. So, you know, we had to sort of not think about the distractions. Often in in a a long-term care site, you know, you're very lucky if you end up having your own space. You end up going to wherever there is space for you. But, um, you know, it just made me realize as well that culturally, you know, if I was somebody who wasn't from here, how would I feel if, if I wasn't able to smudge? How would I feel if I if I wasn't able to speak my own language? And um, you know, those again were interesting conversations that we had, um, like myself and the group. So um, 
I think as well, you know, if, if you do want to run cultural-based groups in some of the cities that you are at, you do need to go speak to the manager to ask them, you know, how would it look like if we were going to smudge? Where could we do this? You know, you can't just start smudging indoors if all your fire sprinklers are going to go off. Um, <laughs> logistically as well, if people are coming from secure floors, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also being able to adapt to the different places you go to. Um, you know, my day a school where I'm working with elementary kids is very different compared to one of the group homes I go to, for instance, on a Thursday evening, which is a small group home for mothers going through addiction with their children. That is somebody's home, essentially. And you go in there, it's a very different environment. You know, we end up having music therapy in the TV room. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, you need to, you know, my advice to, to, to sort of working in a culturally informed practice is being able to adapt yourself. Um for each place that you go into. Yeah. Oh, there are so many good parts in there. So many good ones. So the, um, I'll just share some of my own personal experiences. So we started with, you were kind of talking about recreation. So in my internship, uh, I was at a state hospital, so a mental health institution, where my supervisor, her position was a recreation therapist position. So very early, I was directly um, put into a situation where we every day were kind of defining how we were different than the recreation therapist in the office next door who played guitar, you know, because the work he was doing was valid and needed, but it was different. (laughs) Yeah. And then it also made me think of I have one of my schools I go to, I do contract work. So I'm in a different location all day, every day, in and out of my car, all these different settings. Uh, And one of my schools, they're very adamant about always telling me the songs they're doing in class. So, you know, we're doing Five Little Ducks this month, or we're doing Wheels on the Bus this month, or they always tell me what they're doing, which is great. Uh, and these are these are young, young kids, so like three to five. And so I take these songs and I have to think, so how am I doing this song differently as the music therapist to what the teacher is doing? What am I adding to it? And and why is it important that I do or don't do it? Right. Based on my skill set versus what they're already doing. So. And it's also really interesting how you sort of bring this thing just back to sort of sort of repertoire choice as well. And, you know, I make it very clear um, because obviously, again, uh, you know, in many of the school settings, they have their set songs. They do, for instance, you know, um, Five Green and Speckled Frogs, mm-hmm. you know, their own version of a Hello song and stuff like that. But, um, for instance, what makes the setting that quite unique that I'm in is that there is quite a varied group of ages in each class that I work with. So um, I'm in two elementary settings. And um, the, the 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 I work based so, so and I'll talk a little, I'll talk a little bit actually about my my, my main job. Um, so I work with Renfrew Education, and they have five different centres here in Calgary, and um, they work with kids who have different special needs, um, all the way from early years up to sort of the end of elementary. And in my my sort of day job as well, I often reiterate that. You know, someone who's in grade four, for instance, might not be at the developmental age of someone in grade four. Let's say if they're diagnosed with CP or uh, Down syndrome. However, that doesn't mean that they're not going to still want to listen to the music that all the other friends might be listening to on the radio. Totally. So, you know, I use, for instance, Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. And, um, you know, I've, I've had some feedback that people like the, 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 the fact that I'm actually singing other songs compared to just the sort of baseline kindergarten songs. You know, and, and again, if I go back to my own work, I, I did some work with adults who had developmental disabilities. And I worked, I walked into a sit in the one day where there were a group of 20-year-old guys um, and they were singing the wheels on the bus go round and round. I, I was just like, these guys are 20. Why, why would you sing that? Just because someone has a developmental disability, don't, don't treat them necessarily like they're children. And um, I think as well, you know, repertoire choice is a very important thing. So part of what I do now in my assessment as well in, in my job is I ask parents, you know, what are some of the songs that your kids like? And, I mean, the response has been fantastic. You know, I have one kid who loves jazz. I have some, you know, who's, who's about eight years old. I have somebody else who loves sort of world, world music and drumming. 
of someone who also loves Spanish guitar. But, you know, you look at the kids and, and often the feedback that I get is, you know, there's frustration or they don't like doing this or they don't like doing that. But then often it's also a case of no one's really ever asked them, you know, what is a piece of music you might like to do? What song would you maybe like to sing? So, you know, I think as well when we're doing our, our assessments and that is also understanding, you know, how can music be contraindicative? So if you're not choosing the correct repertoire for a group of, you know, let's say you're working with a group when, and none of them love the Eagle songs, don't sing any Eagle songs. But you wouldn't know that unless you assess. And I think that's something else as well in our work is making people aware, you know, that as an educator, I don't have to assess. There is not necessarily a referral. I don't set up a treatment plan. There is no evaluation at the end. Um, but really as therapists, part of that sort of data-driven collection is what we do. And again, that also makes our work very unique to the people or person we're working with. And, you know, in my work as well, um, the way I might be running a group with a bunch of grade four boys is going to look very different to a one-on-one -on -one with someone who's in grade seven compared to someone who's in grade one. Um, but the whole time, it's also coming back to meeting the specific needs of the person who you're working with in that time. Whereas perhaps an educator, when I'm working with 12 or 15 kids, I don't have time to meet the specific needs. I'm there to meet the needs of the whole class, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that age-appropriate and client-preferred element. Those are yes. so important. Yes. I hope you learned something so far from this conversation. I know I really enjoyed listening to Fleur and her life story and things that she's learned and picked up along the way, as well as just the philosophical questions she asks herself. And, you know, it's important for us to realize that we might not have the answers when those kind of questions come up, but along the way, we gain so much insight. So make sure you tune in next week to hear the remainder of my conversation with Fleur. You don't want to miss that. Uh, she, especially in the rapid fire, came prepared for some of those questions. So the, her answers are um, very, very insightful. Again, if you're looking for a way to support the podcast, please consider becoming a patron over on patreon.com. Our patrons have the exclusive opportunity to ask guest questions. And the link is always in the show notes. So you can check it out there. If you or someone you know is interested in being on the podcast, please shoot an email over to feedback at musictherapychronicles.com. The show is impossible without our guests, uh, and I really appreciate all the conversations I'm able to have with each guest and to be able to share their insights with you, the listeners. And if there's someone that you maybe follow their blog or see them on social media or saw them at a conference and you want to hear more from them, let me know and I will reach out and see what I can do. That's it for this week's episode. Again, remember to tune in for the rest of my conversation with Fleur next week and I will see you in the next one. Mm -hmm.